Well, thank you for uh, coming this evening. And um, I'm pleased to have a chance to tell you about uh, my current project, which is called The Class. Uh, and this is the uh, tentative title of the book, which is kind of on its way to being written, I would say. So your feedback and thoughts are going to be very helpful. And uh, I just said to Chris I was going to try and give you the whole book in 45 minutes, but uh, maybe that will be excessive. So this is a project that I'm doing jointly with Julian Sefton Green. And it's uh, unlike much of my work on children's internet safety, which has been very survey-based, this is going to be a very, um, this is a very detailed ethnographic project uh, of one class in one school over one year. And I want to think about connections and disconnections. And you know how when you're um, researching a topic and suddenly you hear the word from your topic everywhere and you become, you think everyone is obsessed with your topic. I don't know if this happens to you. Well, to me, I hear the word connect everywhere. Um, and uh, I'm astonished as to how this word has suddenly entered the English language. Actually, I don't know how it works in other languages, but I hear the notion of connection everywhere. And when I just put it into Google Images yesterday, uh, I was fascinated to see that connection means um, connecting you with your um, connecting you on your phone, connecting you with your bank, connecting you with your friends, connecting you to God, connecting you um, to connecting you around the world. Uh, people don't say, um, I'll call you, they say, let's connect, or let's... Uh, everything is a matter of... We are connecting ideas as academics. So connections are um, suddenly everywhere. And uh, as you can see from my um, logo at the top, I'm going to be talking about a piece of work that comes within a network called the Connected Learning Research Network. So I'm very attuned to thinking about the ways in which we are calling for connection. And the other thing you'll notice about this slide is that these are all rather happy, positive, cheerful images. Uh, connection is a good thing, and that becomes very obvious when you type disconnection into uh, Google Images, and you see that disconnection is widely thought of as something rather bad and gloomy, scary, negative, um, and uh, all kinds of things getting disconnected, families, relationships, the world. Um, so connection's good, uh, disconnection's bad. And what I'm hearing in this discourse is a desire to find a word that somehow reflects what we think are the affordances of the digital age, but also draws upon much longer-term values about uh, what we think humanity should be doing, what we value, and what we value is connecting with each other, and somehow um, overcoming the controlling and disconnecting tendencies of various institutions that manage our lives. So disconnection is seen as a way of overcoming um, the negative features of institutions they seek to control us. And uh, I'm heading in the direction of the two institutions that manage or uh, shape children's lives, uh, the school and the family, though, of course, there are other institutions that also uh, manage their lives, and um, if we can call, put the media or technologies as an institution, which we sort of can and sort of can't, um, then uh, we could think about the connecting and disconnecting uh, capabilities of media also. So, uh, two books out um, recently. I just saw a note for Ethan Zuckerman's book, which is billed as um, uh, Life in the Connected Age, so uh, I, we're thinking about whether this is now a connected age. Are we more connected? Um, and uh, what do we hope connections should be? And where I'm going in this talk, just to give you a sense of my ending, uh, is firstly to rethink the instinctive valorization of connection as good and to start thinking about whether disconnection might also have some advantages, and if so, do we need another label for it, like separation or distinction, or um, you know, do, we, do we want to buy into this notion that uh, connection is always good? But connection is always good is kind of a starting point uh, for the work that I'm going to talk about, because it's a starting point for the work that the organisation that is funding my project, which is the uh, MacArthur Foundation's Digital Media Learning Initiative. And this is just um, what the uh, Digital Media Learning Initiative is doing uh, this month. 
and gives you a sense of the way in which the affordances of the digital are being harnessed to underpin what is uh, seen as the desire of the human to find ways of connecting, connecting uh, identities, connecting learning, connecting um, uh, pathways through life, connecting interests with uh, life chances. Um, and if that means redesigning um, the uh, infrastructure that supports learning or supports the, way, the, the ways in which children live their lives or the passages they take through their lives, then the redesigning of those environments becomes uh, part of the enterprise. And it very much is for uh, the way in which MacArthur is funding new kinds of learning centres, new kinds of um, spaces for young people to pursue their interests and uh, carry those forward. So I don't know uh, how familiar people are with these kinds of um, projects, but my guess is that you are. And uh, within this broad agenda, I was um, really given the kind of the dream brief, which was as long as the words digital media and learning were in my project title, I could do what I wanted to. Uh, and um, from my previous work, I just had such a strong sense that... Uh, Many children and young people are not the geeks and hackers and entrepreneurs that um, this kind of work really thrives upon and celebrates. And uh, survey after survey and indeed um, qualitative project one after the other repeatedly shows how few children and young people take advantage of the kinds of uh, new opportunities to connect and to connect digitally and to create and so forth that um, many are very keen we should develop. So the kind of driving question for me really is, is this a problem? Uh, is there something wonderful being developed and offered that we would love more children and young people to gain the benefit from and that we should find ways uh, to enable that? Or is this um, much of what's being described here in building fan communities and uh, civic digital networks and um, hackathons? Is this very nice for the few who choose, but not really necessary and desirable for everybody to become involved and everybody to, as it were, connect their uh, interests, their learning opportunities um, and their uh, various ways of participating in the world? Maybe we don't need... Um, all of that. So that's a question, and uh, here's a joke, uh, which uh, amused me when I saw it. As I see it, then, I could say that the um, Digital Media Learning Initiative um, thinks the world is the other way around. Thinks it's not so much that children once had fun and now they're all staring mindlessly at their technology as the popular uh, imagination often has it, but rather it fears that children are all looking rather like this, kind of in the classroom, bored out of their minds, separated from each other, and not really engaged with anything. And it's the technology, if you put that into their hands, that could provide them with new kinds of opportunities to follow their interests and, as it were, have fun, albeit more in a digital playground than a physical playground. And that's the kind of um, opposition I think that many uh, in this field are working with. So, um, I'm not an educationalist, though I'm working with one and writing this book. I'm a media scholar from the Department of Media and Communication, so I thought I'd better um, give you a sense of why I'm thinking about learning and uh, questions of how the digital might uh, un underpin learning before I tell you about the empirical part of my project. And it seems to me that in the world of, in the, in the rather kind of multidisciplinary field of media and communications, we've made a really uh, interesting shift in the last few decades from what one might call media and to mediation or mediated. So media and, which dominated our field for um, a long time, was media and the family, media and politics, media and the environment, media and anything you like to put there. You brought together the media studies scholar and the, the, the person who knew about X, and they might have a fertile conversation and something would result. But now, at least as media and communications scholars see it, 
everything is mediated, so there is no way of thinking about schools or family or the environment or medicine or anything you care to name without recognising that in some senses, in the last few decades or even in the last few millennia, uh, there has been a co-evolution of processes of mediation and whatever field it is that you're interested in. So uh, in the world of family or in the world of learning, the ways in which uh, school or family is mediated and differently mediated in different uh, cultural contexts and at different historical times is a feature of that domain and a feature that is always changing and shifting in a probably non-linear way. Uh, doesn't make it the main feature. I'm not saying the media are the most important thing in relation to the family or the school or indeed any other field of uh, endeavour you might name, but it's one thread running through the analysis. And it's what, what um, uh, people, certainly in media and communications, would always insist is that thread is always going to be historically and culturally contingent, and so we're not going to, as it were, see the transformation of uh, any field of endeavour because of the media in any clear and linear fashion though there are a lot of arguments uh, about the increasing um, uh, conglomeration and standardisation and technologization of processes of mediation in a particular direction that is marked by, uh, let's say, um, consumerism and globalisation. The other thing that media and communication scholars um, like to insist on, and there are many, but I come uh, from a particular perspective is to think about uh, what one might call the circuit of culture, which is to think about the, uh, or, or um, theories of domestication in particular, which is to think about ways in which as these processes of mediation unfold through the school or through the family or through any other sphere of human activity, we have to understand what what, what that circuit means, not only in terms of the technology, not only in terms of the text, not only in terms of the political economy, but how it is lived, and how it is lived by people in messy living rooms and clunky school rooms and uh, spaces online that adults don't always notice, um, is part of how the meanings uh, and the possibilities of any form of mediation take shape. And that's part of why one can never say this is a linear process in which I know what the technology is, therefore I know what its impact or its outcome um, will be. So one always has to kind of follow through this messy process that involves getting out of the university, talking to the people, uh, sitting in the bedroom, sitting in the classrooms, um, listening to people as they try to express how they are appropriating and making meanings out of uh, media in particular ways. And that requires, in turn, um, um, a range of methodologies. Uh, and what I'm going to talk about today certainly used a range of methodologies which don't always, or which are complicated to bring together in a kind of neat and orderly fashion. The other thing that the circuit of culture um, or the circuit of mediation insists upon and repeatedly finds is that this circuit is a broken circuit. The circuit is full of disjunctions and complications. It's not a smooth process from, let us say, the production of any um, media text or piece of technology. It's not a smooth process as that unfolds into people's lives. There are always moments of struggle and contestation and different kinds of meanings which... Um, uh, People seek to attribute to the whatever bit of kit it is. So in the research project I'm going to talk about, we really try to listen out for what those disjunctions were, as well as um, the, uh, the, the, the flows, if you like, and the disjunctions uh, in the flow, in, in the, um, the circuit of mediation, I'm going to link to disconnections, going back to the ways in which I would like us to rethink um, any simple notion of connection, good, disconnection, bad. Okay, still, um, the other, um, perhaps another way in which people think in meeting communications and doubtless in other 
um, field is to think still, even though we don't want to say mediation is a linear process and we don't want to be technological determinists, we understand that meanings have their, um, are, are appropriated in particular ways depending on context. Still, we want to say that there is something about the affordances of the digital technologies that we're now grappling with, which have particular kinds of features uh, which seem, many would argue, to underpin this new kind of revived potential for uh, connection, good, disconnection, bad. Um, okay, everyone has their favourite list of the uh, affordances of today's digital network technologies, and uh, every time I put, make a slide like this, I change the list. So um, this is my current list. Um, I think what is going to be crucial to the argument that I want to uh, unpack about uh, thinking about connection and disconnection is to see how these affordances are in one sense, in a crucial sense, value-free. In other words, we can conceive of them as somehow bringing about those positive values of connection that many call for, um, uh, facilitating new kinds of creativity, uh, new ways of sharing, new ways of uh, working with messages so that anyone can uh, create their own meanings, let's say. And at the same time, we can see how the same affordances bring about all kinds of problems of connection uh, that don't always, that, that many are very concerned about, but that aren't always visible in that kind of call for connection. So they also make a world which is increasingly surveillant. They make a world which is um, increasingly difficult to manage from a, um, in terms of ordinary people. They make a world which is increasingly commodifiable and monetizable. Um, all these uh, words that we're now trying to get our mouths around. Um, so the affordances enable connection, yes, but they also bring problems with the connection and therefore they may be part of why it is, as I'm going to suggest, there are some very strong motivations for people to disconnect. Okay, so, uh, one school, one class, uh, one year of me and Julian hanging out in these kids' lives, uh, trying to look uh, unobtrusive. Uh, so, we decided to go to, to study a group, a class, um, in what is um, one might call a bog-standard comp, in the um, words of British education policy. And uh, we chose year nine, uh, which, for those who don't know, is 13 to 14-year-olds, because that's when they all go crazy on Facebook. So, the... Uh, belief was then when we designed the project. Uh, year nine um, sometimes gets call, called the lost year because they've settled into secondary school and they haven't yet begun their uh, GCSE curriculum, their exam curriculum. So they are making some important choices about which direction they're going to take in their schooling, but they're not yet, as it were, locked down. At least that would be my uh, contention. And um, they were also... Oh, they're an interesting group to study. Um, so, these are the questions that we began. The question, this is another slide that changes every time I look at it, because research questions evolve as you go through a project. You don't kind of stick with them the way they were at the start. But essentially, the point is to try to understand how digital media activities have become or to the, ex the extent to which they've become a kind of underpinning for the ways in which young people are living socialising and learning in their daily lives. And uh, so you can see the uh, mark of the uh, circuit of culture kind of approach in, in what I'm going to say. Uh, and also the, um, the MacArthur concern with how those wider opportunity structures could be redesigned uh, should one want to take a more normative account to what it is that I'm going to uh, present to you. Um, well, I can tell you many things about the, um, the methodology, but I'll be brief and talk mainly about what I think we've found in our project. Uh, and if you want to come back to questions of methodology, you might. But just to say, um, here is the school in a stylized um, uh, drawing. And the kids in the, this one year nine class that we picked, 28, 13 year olds, when we began, uh, lived at this varying distance where 
um, uh, the whole thing was about four miles across, probably. So you could walk the furthest kids. That would be a long walk, but they could all... Um, these ones could walk to the school, these took the bus to the school, and the fieldwork turned out to be pretty local. We spent most of the year on this map, and our purpose was to try and follow the kids where they went, and though they did occasionally get on a plane and go to all kinds of places, for the most part, they spent their year here, and so did we. And um, uh, I don't know how British a feature this is, but this line, which marks both a railway line and a road, of course, is also a marker of social class. Uh, it won't surprise you if you know our country well. Um, so this is the more middle-class area. This is a poorer area. And it was a very um, uh, multi-racial, mixed, ethnic grouping, but with some very uh, strong uh, differences in terms of social uh, resources. Well... I'm not going to say much about that, but we did spend a lot of time in the year in, 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 with the class. Perhaps the easiest thing is to say, after a phase of preparation, we spent the first term in the school listening to the classes, hanging out in the corridors, being, um, interviewing the kids in and around the class as much as we could, uh, doing little surveys whenever um, we were permitted, and watching any process that came up within that term that we could get access to watching. In the second term, we went home and uh, hung out with the kids at home, looked at their bedrooms, interviewed their parents, talked to the, um, did a kind of media tour of the house. In the third term, we tried to follow the kids to whatever other significant things there were in their lives, if it was a family um, event or a sporting activity uh, or... Um, various kinds of interests that they had, we tried to follow. And at the end, we interviewed them all about their year past and where they thought they were headed. And even in, the in designing the methodology, we hit up against a number of disjunctions in the kids' lives, which I thought was interesting. Most obviously, um, between, around Christmas, uh, the head teacher and the teacher saying to us, you're going home with the kids as if we were kind of falling off the edge of the world, really, and going to some unknown place where the children would turn out to be little green monsters. They would turn, I don't know how they would turn out. There was a, a, a kind of trepidation on the part of the school that we were going to uh, go home. And I was just telling um, this to some uh, friends recently who said that in their child's school, there is actually a line painted on the school, I don't know how common this is, which is where parents may not pass. Uh, so it, the point was that we were crossing that line. And when we crossed that line and we arrived home, the parents acted as if we had indeed arrived from Mars and wanted our you know, account of what happened to their child when they disappeared each day between nine and four, or whatever it was. Um, so you could immediately see that the children who, of course, you know, we were always with and therefore moved across these spaces with ease, um, were already uh, making connections between um, spaces that the adults supervising them and looking after them didn't necessarily themselves understand very well. Okay, um, now I'm going to tell you uh, a few uh, moments from fieldwork, and I hope it's going to come together to a conclusion. Okay, the first moment from fieldwork was um, following... We, we, we tried to um, insinuate ourselves into whatever elements of the kids' lives that we could. And one of them was that the school decided this year to take up the World Challenge, which is a big... Does everyone know what it is? I don't know. It's a very large... Um, it's, a very, it's run in many schools, and it's, um, I assume, a corporate um, organisation... Uh, trying to get kids to undertake various charitable activities. And if they raise sufficient money, they go to some far-flung, needy country. Uh, in this case, um, they were going to Malaysia, and they do some charitable work, and they also have a kind of safari, and it's fun. And they have to work pretty hard, and they have to raise £2,000 each, which for a 13-year-old is a lot of money. I mean, that's raising serious money. 
I thought it would be a perfect thing to study because it was going to unfold over the year of the fieldwork and because it was organi it's organised globally. So the website is full of rhetoric about this is, this, is the this is the world challenge. This is going to connect youth across the world and everyone is going to be travelling to other places and learning about different people's lives. And there was a facility on the website for um, everyone to talk to each other so you could meet people from other countries or other parts of your own country um, and engage. And it offers a, a form of... Um, uh, digital connection for uh, students, teachers, parents, and so forth, who could all... Uh, it was precisely seemed to illustrate the way in which digital networks could enable new kinds of connections. Um, and so, uh, as you may uh, guess, over the course of the year, what we charted was a series of disconnections and problematic moments of both technology and social relations... Uh, which turned the world challenge into something which ended up being a moment of um, some benefit to a privileged few and a very offline experience rather than a digital experience in the main. So it began when we uh, first were meeting the, um, the class and everyone was engaged in the moment of excitement when they could pitch to be in the world challenge and they were all kind of trying to put their best foot forward and write their account of how they could contribute and how they could raise money and then uh, somehow as it turned out four kids in our class and um, 16 across the year group were selected and they were articulate successful well-performing middle-class children and um, in trying to unpick with the teacher how that had happened and how this turned out to be a kind of reproduction of privilege. Um, I think a very typical story about digital technologies in schools came out, which was that this, the teacher wanted to engage in the initiative and the head was uncertain, so he said, OK, but don't make this risky, don't make this hazardous, it might go wrong, pick kids you know are going to kind of succeed and who have the parental backup to raise the money should they not manage it. Um, and the teacher, in being anxious about it, and rightly so, given that she was carrying the entire burden, um, made it a very top-down, thoroughly managed process in which she led, and the kids, um, they, 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 they enjoyed it, and they did, in the end, raise their money, and they did go and have a great time and put all the pictures on Facebook. What they never did was chat with anyone in any other school, let alone uh, around the world. Um, and what I watched over the year was turning up and everyone would get together with their plans and the, the website would have gone down or the teacher had forgotten the password or um, no one was uh, communicating very effectively except face-to-face. -face. This was a, a triumph of face-to-face -face communication, this. Um, and it became a very offline activity, a very old-fashioned activity of kids organising baking sales and getting a bit of money by babysitting for the neighbours and washing the neighbours' car. And it was, a, you know, it was a laudable activity, which they engaged in. It just wasn't a very um, digitally uh, connected activity, and it was one which uh, reproduced advantage. So, at a certain point in the fieldwork... Uh, we were tempted to say uh, the disconnections are rife and the technology, as has been well uh, documented in the literature, including in um, uh, Chris's work, um, there are many problems with the technology that mean that it doesn't facilitate what it is that we hope it might yet. Uh, so at a certain point I decided, well, I would draw out my little map and try and work out what I thought was happening because... The uh, World Challenge was one of many instances that I saw. So the connected learning model, as it were, just to go back to where I started, says if we could somehow harness the way in which children develop their interests and find, give that kind of peer recognition and find a mechanism for sharing their mutual interests and uh, they would support each other through informal learning communities... And if we could then find some way of that being recognised in the school, then we'd have a virtuous circle that could be enabled by digital technologies. I made the digital a blue cloud, just because I couldn't put it anywhere. Um, 
And in our project, we've kind of operationalized this as trying to understand the, what's going on with the kids at home, especially with the parents, what's going on with the kids in the peer group, and what's going on at school. So this was our phases one, two, and three of the research project. And we were trying to see, and I had thought the, um, the World Challenge would be a moment when they would take their interests. Let's say they um, love other children, so babysitting would be a thing. I don't know. They would take their interests. They would somehow do it with their friends. They would build a network. They would raise some money. They would get brownie points in school. They would learn about this foreign place. They would help the world, and so on. But there were many ways in which um, just spending a term sitting in a classroom and then another term sitting at home makes you see how um, technologies, the, the, the digital in very many ways, are not acting uh, as one might have hoped. And I could give an equivalent story about the teachers attempting to blog. And I thought that might also be a, a way in which teachers blogging maths problems or interesting approaches to geography might be something that the kids could then go home and kind of connect the school home site by... Uh, learning by, by participating in a more flexible setting at home and they could bring their own examples in. Um, we didn't see effective teachers' blogs, but we saw many efforts. Similarly, we saw a whole series of ways in which the young people had interests that they developed at home that didn't kind of find recognition, um, sometimes with their peers and usually at school. So um, experiences like watching a boy who seemed to be the kind of class clown uh, going plink, plink, plonk on a beautiful keyboard in a music class um, and really learning very little at all except how to entertain his friends by messing around. And then seeing him a few weeks later um, playing um, uh, a particular instrument which was the instrument of his um, diasporic culture and playing it beautifully and having a room full of attendant uh, audience admiring and both, as it were, affirming his, cultural, uh, his subcultural identity and also his expertise. Uh, and we had lots of disjunctions um, between, as it were, the sphere of academic knowledge of... Um, spontaneously developed or familial developed uh, interests uh, and um, one might hope for some uh, peer recognition uh, too. So we could say there are lots of stumbling blocks and barriers. The technology isn't working yet as well as we might hope it would but everyone's working hard at it. The teachers were working very hard at their blogs even though the kids didn't know where they were and didn't really want to uh, go and check out a teacher's blog in the evening when they'd done their homework. And um, the kids were at home playing football or playing their musical instruments or developing their uh, writing skills, but they didn't really want to find a way of having that recognised within the school very much. And one might say, well, we could redesign the school and we could find ways in which that uh, two could be, as it were, better connected. And part of me still thinks, yes, there are lots of ways in which um, children are learning and knowing things in different places and it doesn't connect up in ways that could create more fertile um, kind of possibilities for them. And they certainly, um, and, and, and this was kind of an initial surprise for me, but we didn't find, and okay, there were only 28 kids in the class, but we didn't really find kids who were doing the kinds of things that the Digital Media Learning Initiative is celebrating. We didn't find the kids spontaneously coding or geeking out or um, uh, building their own uh, civic communities for protesting about, you know, just none of it, none of it. And you could see that there was a little bit of it here and there across the school. And part of me thinks we should have junked the class at this point and followed the few kids who were doing some of these things, and that would have been a different project. But the point was to try to understand how does the digital underpin the lives of um, everyday, ordinary kids. So, um, I want to give you three snapshots further, and then I'm going to stop. And they can all be introduced by pointing out the... Um, fact that our project is named after this film or 
anyway, it's called The Class, because we studied a class, but some of you might know this film, which is actually called Entre les Murs, but was translated in English as The Class. Quick show of hands. Oh, two people have seen it. Okay, I thoroughly recommend it. It's a beautiful film. So, the French system, by all accounts, seems to be even more um, controlling uh, than I sometimes think the British system is. And this is a film about an idealistic young teacher who, after teaching his um, class for a while, and they're, they're 14, uh, thinks it would be, I, I don't know anything about these kids. I need to bring their lives into the life of the classroom, and I need to have them come and tell their stories. And after all, what we do is um, they, they were doing a creative work in his class. So he, as it were, opened the doors and let the outside in and the kids brought in some of their home lives and some of their interests and everything went catastrophically wrong because what the kids brought in was difference and difficulty and inequality and problems and the orderly space of his classroom became a disruptive space which undermined his authority and undermined the possibility for teaching unless someone could have made a kind of fantastic meta moment and reflected on that very process, which they didn't. Um, so it all went catastrophically wrong. And the message was, stick to your boundaries, stick to your discipline, and um, that will help you understand what was for me a deeply depressing but very typical moment uh, sitting in the classroom, listening to what actually went on in a British school. So this is a geography teacher. One day, could have been many days, in what I'll remind you is a pretty decent school, really. And he just does a whole pile of discipline talk. You know, it takes you right back to being 13, right? You kind of remember sitting through it. You're mortified. You hate being there. You hate that there is this person having to behave like this. I could read it out for you, but it turns me into one of those people, so I shan't. Um, okay, so this is the first of my moments, because um, Julian and I argued a lot about what this was all about, and whether this was just a bad teacher losing control of his class, or whether this was a teacher doing something that the institution kind of makes of him, because he doesn't want what it is that I just described in the French film. And because he's got a lot of difference to contend with uh, in dealing with the kids in his class, where it was literally the millionaire's child sitting next to the refugee child and people of every um, ethnicity and religion and kind of value system uh, sitting together. And so what we heard was a lot of discipline. And... Um, the discipline, if you like, addresses the threat of incivility that disrupted that, the possibility of learning in the film. Uh, and so we started to think about the way in which discipline underpins civility in a way that can be thought of positively as well as um, critically, because he's insisting on a certain kind of behaviour, and we saw many mechanisms for insisting on particular kinds of behaviour that would enable particular kinds of learning. Um, there are two mediations that underpinned and made um, the discipline of the classroom possible. Um, the first one, which I was astonished by, was that the whole time the teachers were making references to popular culture in a way that I was, you know, I just set myself this task, write down everything about the media. And there they were talking about Hollywood films and what had been on TV last night and... Um, um, pop stars that everyone knew about, and they were talking about them all the time. And I realised, um, and this may be uh, familiar to you, that they were calling upon the only thing they felt they had in common with the kids, that all the kids had in common with each other. And that was the language of commonality, and it was kind of underpinning the um, management of a certain kind of a civil space where everyone could be, uh, as it were, we together. We are all in this together. Whoever we are, wherever we come from, we're all going to kind of learn and manage this. So popular culture as the, uh, the common shared language 
and precisely not all the other things that were interesting to and important to the children in their identity, which would be divisive if, or could be divisive and difficult to manage if discussed within the classroom. The second mediation, um, which also I just found completely um, astonishing when I arrived and may be more or less familiar to you, was that the discipline and the learning process was thoroughly encoded in the school information management system. And they use SIMS, which is, I think, one of the most um, used uh, school information management systems in the class. So that there was um, a lot of ticking, a lot of encoding behavior on the board and a lot of encoding behavior on the computer throughout every class. So I might, given that I, if I knew your names, I might have by now already ticked off that Chris gets a good point for sitting very quietly and you've been fiddling with your something or other so you get a bad point and I might have encoded 10 or 15 data points variously on your behavior and on your learning by the end of each class and at the end of each day, the form teacher, the home room teacher, uh, would read out everyone's marks so that the discipline was kind of made visible and encoded. And <laughs> Okay, so here's one of those ethnographic moments. Um, so, my, so my two mediations are the, the common culture to bring us to everyone together as we are all in this together and the school information management system to encode and ensure that in a very particular way. So then um, remember uh, what I said about needing to hear the kids' view in the whole circuit of culture. And what I had to contend with next was that the kids all liked this. They were perfectly happy with all of it. And the parents were pretty happy with all of it. And so even though I sat there thinking, oh my God, this is the panopticon gone mad, um, uh, they were reasonably happy. So here's Nick. He was typical in wanting to tell me he'd worked out the calculus. He knew how to behave and how to, you know, it was manageable to him. Here's Salma saying she likes it because they keep tabs on me and so they know where I, how I am and so I know how I'm doing and so we kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's good. They keep all of this data. Here's Gideon, who used to be a bad boy and has become a good boy, telling us in the language of the concerns, the bad marks, how he has developed his identity. In other words, he thinks about his own progress as a learner and in terms of his identity um, in the same metric that he is measured in. And then there's Adriana's dad telling us, and these, you know, I could have had many more quotes here, given the kind of intake the school has, and he, this is a middle-class man, given the mix of people who are here, it's good that something, this is fair. This system is fair. And I'll just go back to that ambivalence about affordances. So the school information management system makes everything transparent, visible, accountable, surveillant, but fair. And that's the kind of paradox that um, I think uh, we're seeing in the mediation of, in this dimension of the um, mediation of learning. Okay, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to give you two more snapshots. So it's not always we are all in this together. Uh, sometimes there's them and there's us and there's many other kinds of subgroupings. And what I'm moving towards is a sense of different kinds of sociality that underpin connections. So one connection says we're all together. Another says actually we're not, we're, we're various. And, um, okay, this is an image that's going to take a bit of explaining uh, especially as I haven't put any names on because I haven't managed to do it yet. One of the things we did was we asked the whole class, the 28 kids, to say of everyone else in the class, uh, who do you ask for homework help from? Who'd, who's your friend? Who do you tell when you've got a problem? Who do you hang out with after class? The kind of standard small network tasks, or big network tasks. And we created the social network of the class. Um, and what the social network of the class told us, but it doesn't tell you to like, explain it, is that in their everyday decisions, their agentic decisions, if you like, about who they hang out with and who they ask for help from and who they play games with and whatever, the kids reproduced um, more or less gender, age, gender um, ethnicity and social class. So... The other thing you can immediately tell is that there's something about a structure. Here's a kind of well-connected group of popular kids. 
They are mainly boys and mainly middle class and mainly white. And here's a group of more peripheral, less connected, that word, um, uh, ethnic minority boys. Here's an even less connected, sort of just about hanging in their um, collection of uh, ethnic minority girls. And this one is the, um, one of the most uh, peripheral and bullied. This is a pair of very popular, confident, middle-class white girls who hang out with the popular, confident, middle-class white boys. This is a pair of clever girls, gifted and talented, who were more strongly connected in the question, who do you ask for homework help from? Because then they were useful. And less when it came to who do you hang out with. And here is a little clique which bucks all the trends and makes me think kids can make friends over um, class lines because it was, let me just get this right, a middle-class boy, a middle-class girl, and a Somalian girl, and from a very poor household. And they were um, fabulous friends. And um, there's a few other exceptions here and there. That, so it's not completely monolithic. But the point is that beneath the civil, we're all in this together, which took a lot of management to ensure, there was also, um, we, are all we are separate and we have our groups and there's us and them. And this was also mediated. So these kids play football and Xbox together. And these... Kids actually play Xbox too, but not with them, which is interesting. Um, and these two have nothing in common, but they're very into their different media in different ways. One is a Minecraft fan, and the other one goes online and spends a lot of time looking up astronomy. But they have nothing to say to each other outside the class, really. And this is the Harry Potter group, who um, were completely obsessed with Harry Potter. And when I went around to see them, made me you know, get sorted and so on. So uh, I could tell you what I am, but I shan't. <laughs> um, and then they got into the Hunger Games, and probably if I went back, it would be Game of Thrones, I don't know, but that's, um, that's them. So the subgroups are also mediated, but of course they're not mediated by the cop. None of them ever talked about any of those Hollywood films or, you know, pop music or whatever it was that were constantly referenced in the class, but their differences were still mediated. So this is the space um, I'm going to suggest of social reproduction. And this is where, um, oh yes, I'm currently in love with this little picture. Um, so this will be a familiar idea to you, but it just makes it very graphically. If the space of the classroom is about civility and equality and you treat everyone the same, then the effect, of course, is to reproduce difference, especially if where the kids come from is different beforehand. So even though the kids said they liked the school information management system and so on because it was fair, it was fair in the sense that reproduces disadvantage, not the sense of fair, that, and they, that wasn't an analysis that they had, because when they went home and when they went their separate ways, they um, divided up. Okay, running out of time. So, my third layer of sociality and motivation for connections and disconnections is, as it were, me. Not we are all in this together and not us versus them, but just me. And a lot of the media was used for a space of me exploration. So here's, actually this is a different Harry Potter fan. I had no idea she was a Harry Potter fan until I walked into her bedroom and discovered that that's what she was. And here was a kid who had a keyboard on which he learned many more skills at home than I ever saw in music technology um, at school. These are the private spaces of the bedroom where... There was another layer of disjunctions between even the self that was shown to the peer group, let alone the self that was shown to the, um, to the school uh, that could be um, explored. And um, for me, this is the quote that kind of sums it up. So this is one of the two popular girls who was hanging out in there with the middle-class boys in the middle of the group, being super cool and seemingly super connected, and in fact, she's using Tumblr to be 
completely herself in a completely kind of private, I'm in my own head, I find my own images. She doesn't show it to anybody that she knows. She has followers that she doesn't know in that kind of curious world of Tumblr. But she doesn't, nobody she knows, even though she's the most connected girl and loves having, you know, being popular. Um, so, disconnections. This is a girl who um, looked sulky and mutinous and behaved badly in class, was um, middle class and privileged and going to do just fine in her peer group, and privately expressing herself and, her, and exploring her moods and her identity somewhere else. And what I'm really trying to capture is these different layers of sociality and these different kinds of connection and disconnection that just cannot be um, put together in any kind of lump called connection or disconnection. And um, my last slide, really, is to say that somehow in this book, in bringing it all together, I'm thinking about um, uh, Ulrich Beck's notion of individualization and the ways in which um, we are becoming, to some degree, dissociated from traditional class, gender, ethnic affiliations. In other ways, not. He overstates the case, let's say. Um, but when they go to school and they are called upon, kind of each individually, to do the best they can and to raise their level, and there's the schools, as I'm sure you know, are, are slogans all around, in, you know, enjoining you, exhorting you as an individual, wherever you come from, to kind of fight your fight by yourself. My, my reading of this and Beck's reading is that there is a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety and a lot of visible, monitored performance demanded of the young people, but also of the teachers um, and indeed the parents. So they're going along with it in the class because they have to get the results, because it's a very uncertain world. But then they are, there's a very strong push to find other kinds of spaces where they don't have to go along with it and they can do other things. And both the going along with it in the class is mediated, and the pull away and trying to find other spaces is mediated, but they're differently mediated. Um, and if I had more time, I would worry about the commodification of all of that mediation. I have to tell you that the Bank of America saying life's better when we're connected is right next to the MacArthur headquarters in Chicago. And I did, didn't get the MacArthur in the same picture. Um, but there's another set of things, I think, to say about the, um, the commodification of the language of connection. And in that sense, also, I'm trying to find some positives in a language of separation. Thank you. Thanks very much.